0: Okay, we are having questions. Is that right? All right. Dave. Dave was just full of questions, or he's hoping you are. So, what thoughts do you have? Yes, uh, I just find this whole way of organizing things really helpful. And it is, in some ways, I read this book by a guy named Sutton, where, where he talks about five parts of the covenant and so forth. There's a breadth about yours, and a, and a kind of especially when you go on into the, to the destiny and so forth. And I just wondered. Uh, whether it, in, in coming upon this, what this has meant to you personally in terms of your your life and your perspective. I mean, when I somebody mentioned predestination earlier, and when I when I finally glommed onto what that really was all about, I felt like almost a second conversion <coughs> to that. And I and I wondered if you, if you had any kind of um, if, if there was any kind of power through your life through this. this yeah. Good. He's asking what is what is this angle on the Bible done to me. And, you know, I think the pious thing for me to say would be that it has made me more appreciative of God and grateful and that's kind of thing. And it has done that. But that's probably not the thing that has really transformed me the most. What this has done for me more than anything else, and this is going to sound bizarre but I'll go ahead and say it, is that it has made me love people. You cannot imagine how easy it is for professional religious people not to love people. <laughs> I'm not telling you the truth, Dave. The ministry, the ministry would be just great if it weren't for the people, right? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, that's the reality we all we face. And, um, and you know why people become academic theologians, don't you? Because they can't handle people. And they want to separate themselves and become bookworms. I mean, this is it. I mean, why does anybody go study Babylonian and Ugaritic and Bizarro, things like that, like I did, It's because I don't want just to just be in the study. I want to be in the basement of the study, separated from people. People, to me, naturally are a bother. Okay? Until down in that basement, I learned something. And that is that people are the regal image of God. And that this world was made for their honor in submission to our God. And that for me to dis, to use a common term now, to disrespect, to dis the image of God, is to dis God. And so I finally came to grips with why it was that Jesus could not stop talking. When someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said the right answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he couldn't stop talking. The guy didn't ask him what are the two greatest commandments. He said, what's the greatest commandment? But Jesus just knew you can't say one of these without the other. And the second one is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's very easy for you and me to think of the second place commandment as a distant second place. Very distant, like a marathon, second place. Okay, Way around the corner so that we can worship and praise and honor God and not even think about people. If you don't believe that, just think about how many times you've been arguing in the car on the way to church and you walk in here and start praising the Lord. I feel very comfortable doing that because God deserves our praise, even if we're arguing with people. See, the second place is way around the corner. But the reality is, as far as Jesus is concerned, first and second place, photo finish. God is more important. And when you have to choose, like Abraham did, do you love me more than you love your son? Choose God, okay? But it's a photo finish. If you have love for God in the frame, you're going to have love for people in the frame. Because they're his blessed image. And that's what it's done to me, more than anything else. More than anything else. My wife would tell you that too. I'm a bit puzzled by this phrase, subdue the earth. Um, To me, um, the word subdue carries the notion that what needs to be subdued is somehow rebellious or chaotic. Um, In modern times, we tend to reinterpret it in terms of either exploitation or stewardship. But... um, this came before the fall, right? So, and, and so the creation was very good. It was good. So, what was there to subdue? Good. Way to go, Bob. You're fantastic. <laughs> no wonder the students love you so much. They come to you by the thousands. That's great. That's a great question. Because often we have the impression, and I think it's a false impression, that the Bible says that the whole world was one gigantic. Uh, paradise, that the whole earth was created a paradise. But the reality is that's not true. And when you look at the terminologies that are used even before the fall, especially things like God made Adam and then put him in the garden. The garden was a special, as it were, um, I guess the best way to put it, the analogy is that of a royal uh, court garden, a palace garden. And with, this is where God would go in the afternoons, and you know when things were cooled off and go and you know, walk around the garden, that kind of thing. And the world was while um, in biblical terms, you know the sea is the heart of the chaos, and it's been subdued. So there's dry land all around, but the dry land is not, has not been brought to its fruition, has not been um, managed out, It's not been completed or fulfilled. It lies there rather dormant. And so the subduing would have to do with, uh, one, the evil forces that will fight against humanity to do this, I think. But also the fact that there is, that this world still has, that see, that chaos is restrained. And I'm not using that in a technical word, sort of an ancient mythological way. The chaos is restrained, but it's not absent. It's still there. So you get the, the arable land, and then you get the arid land, and then when you think about how, Adam and Eve went; they went out of the garden, and then Cain is driven even further. Even the Hebrew terminology changes as to where these people went, and Cain goes like way out into the desert lands. And this is where um, this is where you find um, even the desert in the Bible being um, described as the chaos, the tohu. Egypt was called the tohu, the uh, formlessness in Deuteronomy 32. I found you in. The chaos and the formlessness in Egypt. And the reason was because the Egyptians thought Egypt was paradise and Israel knew that's not the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is back where we're going. <laughs> we're going to the land of milk and honey. This is, this is chaos, which is what Moses was obviously convincing them of in Deuteronomy 32. So I think that's the notion, is that there was a job to be done and there was going to be in some fashion, at least on a spiritual level, resistance. You know, the serpent came from somewhere according to the book of Revelation, from the sea, right? Where's the beast come from? Out of the sea, that's right. And so I think, even though this is now implied, okay, I don't, this, is, this is a little more speculative, from the sea through the uninhabited lands to the garden. And so as you move out of the garden, I think the purpose of humanity was to turn the whole world into this garden, to make the whole world God's temple garden, palace garden, cultivated ordered, arranged, um, yeah, civilized, how's that, cultured, one, two is the way I saw him. So there. So you would say, the question I got in my mind is, so how did sin enter into the world then when Adam fell? I mean, was it sort of chaos out there as opposed to sin well, we're going to eventually going to get back to the question where did sin come from? Did God make evil and that kind of thing which is a theologians issue, not a bible issue. Um let's just remember the basic picture and that is when the first when the world was first made it was formless and void. And God spirit blew across the water and began to bring order to this formlessness and voidness, right? The first 3 days he brings form, he deals with the tohu making the, uh, the uh, waters above and waters below, the sky, the dry land. The last three days, he puts things in those spheres, okay? And um, those environments giving them content to the emptiness that's there. But the emptiness, the, the, the chaos, the formlessness is not utterly eliminated from the world. God said it's very good. That did not mean it was everything it was ever going to be. It was just He liked the way he had set it up. That's all it meant. Do you hear that? Because we know that in the end, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, we know that there's going to be something different about the new earth. What will not be there? No more sea. sea. Who said it? No more sea. Yeah, no more sea. We're going to have fresh water. Basically, in the ancient well, I can just tell you in the ancient world, you know, you scientists have to deal with this. I don't have to deal with it because I'm not a scientist. I can just say it. You have to wrestle with it. Okay, but um, yeah, in the ancient world, the salt water was looked upon as life-threatening because when it would back up into like the Mesopotamian Valley when when, uh, typhoons would come and they would flood those valleys and the irrigation ditches would get flooded with salt water. That was the pits, as it were. No pun intended there. And um, so um, they knew in a sort of very natural way that fresh water is where life comes from. And uh, the picture in Revelation is not that there won't be water in the new world. There is water. Yes. Where's it come from? The river, the river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Yes. And it waters the whole earth. So there's fresh water throughout the whole new world. And so, yeah, it's um, there is darkness to be conquered still at the beginning there is this, it's out there. And uh, hum, humanity's role was to uh, conquer it. I know that's a little different, and I know we're now into this kind of, you don't know whether this is fairy tale or true, okay? But, um, you know, ask the scientists about the empirical side of this. Let me just tell you, it's true. However you make that mesh with your understanding of the physical world around you today, don't lose this. Because this is what the Bible's about, and that is the conquering of the place of the beast, of the serpent, the elimination of chaos. Because when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, chaos is gone. Isn't that lovely? Because then there's no more tears, then there's no more sadness too. And we, you know, don't worry. In the new world, you'll be skiing in these vast. Oceans of fresh water. You'll be able to ski around and scoop up water and drink it. It'll be great, and you won't say water or water everywhere and plenty to drink. And rather than not a drop to drink, what are you going to say? The, the, the idea of re, uh, subduing before the fall and after the fall. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking that even after the fall, it was almost impossible to. Subdu- yeah, it's even it's much 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 worse, right? Interestingly enough, the same language of. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it is the same language that's used of Israel's conquest of Canaan. Which is really, in my opinion, what the stories in the first part of Genesis are about. It's to teach Israel why they must conquer Canaan. It's because it's the retaking of the world. It's the beginning over again. It's fascinating. It's warfare. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Good, good. Um, there are some there in Genesis 9 where he talks about um, <clears throat> the man who kills another man, that stuff, and the, the requirement don't eat blood of, of an animal. And the, impl- the implied responsibility when he says be fruitful, or the explicit responsibility, he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The implication is if you don't, you get cursed um so yeah there are the stipulations they're not emphasized and that that we will see we'll see that different covenants will emphasize one side more than the other there's no doubt that that's true but um never is a covenant given by god that is purely unilateral purely without any kind of requirement of loyalty you could think of it this way you don't tug on superman's cape you don't spit in the wind and you don't Pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with Jim. Okay? You just don't do it. That's the way it is with God. You know, As much as it may sound like this is all promise, all one-sided, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't, you don't deal with God like he's nobody. You don't disrespect him and expect to get away with it. And that is the that is the understanding of the whole Bible, even when it doesn't emphasize it. That's still in the background, as we'll see with Abraham. Abraham had to learn. We learn that this afternoon. Abraham had to learn that in the hard way. That it sounded like it was just going to be a promise, and so he felt like he could just live any way he wanted to. It was a promise, and then God had to come back to him and say, "Ah, ah, ah, walk before me and be blameless," and then. I'll establish, confirm my covenant with you. So we'll see that a little bit later on. But you're right. I mean, uh, the emphasis is clearly on the grace side in the days of Noah. Until Ham does his thing and (laughs) all of a sudden, whoa, there's stipulations in this deal? I didn't understand that. (laughs) And Canaan is cursed. You know that story.